I want to update you on a story that began right here in this space some 12 years ago in season one. Author Otis Randolph first appeared on show 18, the second time we did the author's roundtable, where we gathered a group of self-published authors to talk about their creative process and their experiences in the business of publishing themselves. Author Otis Randolph was one of the authors we featured on the panel. Let me take you back to June 5th, 2010. Let me tell you a little bit more about Otis Randolph. He began writing in middle school as scribbling poems and song lyrics for his own personal entertainment. Later, he began performing during open mic poetry and jazz sets and reading material from his personal collection. And after courageously reciting lines from his journal, his confidence soared. And he continued participating in entertainment sets in Baltimore, Chicago, Houston, and right here in Washington, D.C. He currently resides in Houston, Texas, where he continues to cultivate his passion for writing. And we're very pleased to Welcome, author Otis Randolph. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, my Good morning. Okay, so your debut novel is called The Frog Pond. Tell us about The Frog Pond. Well, The Frog Pond actually explores the hypocrisy and self-righteousness of athletes and corporate executives and preachers and others who believe that image is everything and truth is insignificant until the actions of a deranged murderer claims the lives of two women who are married to ministers on a down low who secretly practice homosexual behaviors. Mm. Hey, let's just absorb that. That was a mouthful. <laughs> I know. <laughs> wow. So now, okay, in here, exhale. Deep breath. <laughs> a lot to take in for the morning, huh? That's, a, hey, we're ready to That's do, great. We're ready to take it in. Now, just tell us how this story, without giving up the details of the story, but how did this story come about for you in your own life? You're living your life, and then this story just comes to you. How did we get to the frog pond? Well, basically, when the news was talking about the same-sex marriage issue, and by the time it got to D.C., I remember uh, hearing on the news that certain religious organizations were talking about divesting from some of the social organizations that they were helping the city uh, fund, like the homeless shelters and foster camps. I was thinking, as a preacher's kid, I'm like, okay, now wait a minute. I'm seeing and, and hearing two conflicting things, so I'm like, you know what, let's really air all of this stuff out in the open because I can't see how religious organizations could say, okay, until this happens, we're going to divest. But at the same time, you're spending about $3 billion to get some of your clergy out of hot water for doing things that are along that nature. And I'm like, I don't get that. And I just started mm -hmm. writing from there. Mm. That was 12 years ago. And a few days ago, on the first day of spring, I received an email from a family member of author Otis Randolph. And I'm gonna read that letter to you, which was quite a surprise for me to receive. And it was even more moving and quite unexpected what the letter revealed about a side of author Otis Randolph's life that I did not know much about. The part of his life where he was born as and known as Nolan McClinton. Let me bring on my first guest, who is actually a graduate of Hampton University and the author of The Frog Pond, Mr. Otis Randolph. You were here with us a couple of months ago talking about The Frog Pond. It had just been released and you were on our show just prior to that. You and I did a big interview the day of the release. And tell us how the book's been doing since the last time we talked about it, The Frog Pond. Well, it's taken a life of its own. November 3rd will actually be its three-month birthday and I think within this first month, I talked to the manager partners of publishing and I became the number one best-selling title for the publication. I was pretty happy with that. And now it's just taking a life of its own. Every time you turn on the TV, there's something happening that's relating back to the book and people are inboxing. The readers keep posting things on the wall and sending things to my inbox saying, hey, you know, this is what's going on. This is what's going on. So I'm like, okay information overload but I love it all the same I love it all the same well Otis it's and every it's author's awesome. dream to write a book and to have certain things in life come up around the time that the book is published there have been a couple of things that 
have happened in life that mirror the Frog Pond? How have you reacted to those events as the author of this great novel, The Frog Pond? Number one, I am not a psychic. I do not have lottery numbers floating around in the top of my head, so I just want to put that out there because I've gotten a lot of inbox messages on that, too. I had no idea any of this stuff was going to happen. I just wrote the book, and that's it. I have no lottery numbers. I have no lottery numbers. I have no prediction on the election. I have no predictions. I just wrote a novel. It's a work of fiction, and... And you wrote it, and you let it take its natural course. Yeah. it evolve into what it was meant to evolve into. The very first thing that happened was the California debate with Proposition 8 the mm -hmm. day after the book was released, mm -hmm. and it just has not slowed down at all. Every time I turn around, it's there, and all I can say is, it's a work of fiction. Now, Otis, you are a graduate of Hampton University. Dante is a graduate of Florida A&M University. Maisha is a graduate of Howard University. All of them are HBCUs. No, no, I'm a graduate of American University. I went to Howard for my first two years, but then I got a scholarship to AU, and okay. that's where I graduated from. Hampton got the bulk of my student loans, so I was there for three years, and then I transferred and graduated from Columbia College in Chicago, so I kind of got a chance to get the best of both worlds. Okay. Author Otis Randolph on his second appearance in this space way back on October 30th, 2010 on show 39. We were talking about HBCUs. Each time author Otis Randolph was here, I learned a little bit more about him. I remember Go-Go. I remember the Go-Go my freshman year in Hampton. That was the first time I heard it. I think I had sweat so much. Uh, exactly. We almost passed out right in front of one of the um, <laughs> exactly. of Langley Air Force Base. Exactly. Go-Go wow. music. I had no idea. So let me tell everyone that Otis Randolph, author of The Frog Pond, joins us today as well. And that's who you just heard talking there a moment ago. Let me just say that and that we're talking about for color boys who have considered suicide when the rainbow was no pot of gold. And let me tell you that I first heard of this topic from Otis. We had an email exchange. What was it like two o'clock in the morning, Otis? I think so. It was. And you had just come back from a discussion and you couldn't sleep because no, of how, of how moved you were by this topic. So tell me what was going through your mind at two o'clock in the morning when we were having this email exchange. How did this discussion affect you? Well, it affected me because it had to have been about 35 to uh, 40 black men of different ages, different religious backgrounds, and from man heterosexual all the way down to single and gay. So, I mean, it was a mixture of every body and everything and it all dealt with thoughts of suicide not necessarily moving towards their action but there were different thoughts of it and just the different roads that people were coming from in various points of their life that kind of almost kind of met almost at the same point but it was completely different aspects because I know for me with bullying I was probably about 11 years old and unfortunately I was moved from Chicago to Houston because as a black child between 10 and 12, that is the prime age where you will either get recruited by a gang or you will be constantly fighting the gangs to maintain your neutron status of not being affiliated with any of them. You are either going to Little Rock, Arkansas, you were going to Mississippi, you were going, you were going somewhere yeah. south. And I got Houston. And my whole existence, not necessarily at the first school that I went to because I could relate to them. When my mother wanted to make sure that I had a better education in the Fort Bend District, she moved out to Missouri City at the time, which was kind of up and coming. And she was a single mother. She was so determined that I was going to get the best education that she worked two jobs. You've written about some of these things in the frog pond. So as you listen to this conversation today and reflect on the conversation that you all had that night, how did you relate this to what you've quickly, to what you've written in your book, The Frog Pond? Well, basically, I started from Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, as far as treasures and fragile jars of clay. And I know afterwards I had talked to Christopher about it, about all the blackness of uh, and being shrouded in the bullying, that when God lays all of that out, 
before you, then that's when you realize when he shines his light on you that there is a sparkling diamond treasure that he's instilled inside of you that if you still continue on with depression, just hang on in there, you will realize that you have a treasure that's going to benefit and bless those that actually see it and they hate on it. Author Otis Randolph, from his third appearance here on show number 40, a discussion we called for colored boys who have considered suicide when the rainbow was no pot of gold. Back on November 6th, 2010. So this is the letter that I received a few days ago from a family member of author Otis Randolph, Robert. My name is, and he gives his name, which I'm not going to speak out loud. And I'm the, and then he gives the relationship that he has to author Otis Randolph, the familial relationship, which I'm also not going to reveal. I've been in the entertainment industry for over 30 years in an effort to give back to people that have no mentors, role models, people who give up. I give them a safe space to express their art and learn to focus on their craft. Over the years, I've started a film festival. I was searching on Google doing research, and it wasn't until I was looking for platforms that I found your podcast on Nolan. I won't make this long, but I will say thank you. I listened to your podcast and subsequent interview with Nolan, and then he gives the date. Nolan and I were close younger and then grew apart as we both grew older, and he found his way, and I found mine. However, there are things about Nolan's life that I didn't even know about until hearing your interview with him. You gave a very powerful and thoughtful opening statement at the beginning of this interview. I want to thank you for honoring him, sharing your platform with him for as many times as you had. And yes, Nolan was just at the start of his career. He could have, should have, would have brought many things to light to the world that heterosexual straight men like me never knew or understood about gay people, their struggles, and their heartaches. I admit with shame, embarrassment, and humility that not only did I not even know he had a book released, he never came to me about advice on a documentary on his life. I'm in the industry. I'm a family member. I never knew. The truth is, he never got the love, attention, respect, and admiration he deserved from his family. I want to tell you how grateful I am that he at least got some of this praise from you when he was alive to enjoy it. Thank you for bringing a little attention, pleasure, and obviously much needed openness to his life. I'm very grateful. I miss Nolan too, respectfully, and then he leaves his name. So about a minute before we were starting today, Brother Dante just laid down some very sad news. So I'm a little off my game. I'm a little shook, to be quite honest with you. Brother Dante was sharing with me and with Brenda G, who's also here, that someone who we've had on the program several times in our first year and our second year, he was on the first two or three years of the program several times. Author Otis Randolph, who wrote a book called The Frog Pond. His pen name was Otis Randolph. His name in real life was Nolan McClinton. And Dante was just sharing with me that Brother Nolan McClinton passed away this week. So I'm a little shook by that news. Brother Otis, Brother Nolan, was somebody that I met through this program. We did an extensive interview when his book, The Frog Pond, came out. And with most of the guests that I have on the program, once we do the interview, that's pretty much it. I might see them on social media and we might chat in a passing way online, but that's pretty much it. But with this brother, that wasn't the case. We actually kept in touch throughout the years. And as his journey shifted from Chicago to other states that he lived in, I believe he was in Texas at some point, and then he shifted to Washington, D.C., where, of course, I'm from. So our journeys continued. We kept up with one another. It has been a minute, and I have been wondering over the last maybe two years why I have not heard from him. And there are a few times that I reached out to him that I didn't get a response. So I had no idea that the brother had passed away this week. And I certainly wasn't aware of any 
challenges or complications that he was having in his life. So I'm very sorry to hear that news. Very, very sorry to hear that. So rather than to act like I didn't get that news a minute before we started and just carry on, I'm just sharing with you that this is what's going down in my spirit right now after having received that information. And we were just talking about something totally different. And I actually brought his name up to refer to something else. And that's when Dante told me about the brother passing on. So very sorry to hear that good brother, talented brother. Thank goodness and thank God that he did his work while he was here because the book, The Frog Pond, remains. The legacy is solid. He did his work. And so we have that. And it's a really good book. I even went above and beyond what I would normally do for, because at that time on the program, the first couple of seasons, you know, I was booking a lot of people who were coming on to promote whatever it is that they were doing. We were still trying to figure out what the program was going to be. So I would have people on, Dante, you may remember we had the author's roundtable and I would have like four or five authors on at one time to talk about their books and stuff that was going down a lot on the program. And so he was on a lot of those programs and, you know, we really grew to respect one another a great deal. So we became close is what I'm trying to say and uh, kept in touch with one another over the years. It just comes as a blow that the brother is no longer here. You begin to think about, well, maybe I should have called more often or maybe I should have tried harder. We were supposed to get together a couple of years ago when he first moved to Washington a couple of years ago. And of course, I'm here in Ocean City, about two hours away. And honestly, I did not go out of my way to make that happen. Of course, now I'm thinking, (laughs) why didn't you go out of your way to make that happen? But that's a natural human reaction. So we're going to move on from that space right now. But that's very fresh for me. And that really threw me. So dedication to brother Otis Randolph, a.k.a. Nolan McClinton. Good brother. Good brother. And I'm 51. So he's younger than I am. He was younger than I am. Okay, so Dante sending me this now. Thank you, brother. Oh, now I'm going to cry because they have a picture of him here. Okay, so here's what it says. This is what Dante just sent me. This is April 17th. I'm truly at a loss for words. This is a Facebook post. I cannot determine, Dante, who this is from that posted this. Maybe you know. I'm truly at a loss for words. While attending Hampton University, I was fortunate enough to have gained a big brother, someone that always watched my back. And was always there for me. We partied together, played spades together and shared great college memories together. But last night, you took your last breath, and now resting in paradise. I will truly miss my H.U. big brother, Nolan McClinton. And they have a picture of him. Nice picture, too. So that's very sad to me. Very, very sad to me. Very, very sad to me. And we're going to move on, because that's what we have to do. And I know you're with me co-host and I know you're with me audience and everybody that's listening because this is all fresh for me this is all fresh for me Denard and Samuel funneled behind the horde of men into a dark zigzagging corridor ushering them towards a relentless thump Denard was certain the grotto like atmosphere made Samuel invisible as hungry eyes glowed and bounced under the black light, prowling for candidates to feed their sexual needs. The hallway opened into a room packed with brothers bobbing their heads hard with their hands in the air. The roaming red, gold, and green strobe lights searched the confined area like Los Angeles police helicopters would searching for a culprit responsible for producing such a hot funk. Denard felt a disgusting touch of sweat on his forehead, and the disorientation was beguiling to his logic. He veered over to the blue and purple lights of the bar to order some liquid courage to deal with the experience, but Samuel pulled him back. All you need is me and the dance floor. I ain't never danced with no man, Denard slurred out his objection, but Samuel ignored him. Instead, he pushed Denard through the mob and found a quaint spot in the middle of the dance floor. Denard's face frowned as people kept bumping into his motionless body. 
The repulsive humidity made his polo shirt cling uncomfortably to his upper body while Samuel rocked to the rhythm. Drink responsibly, Samuel said when he presented a bottle of Bud Light to Denard. Denard wondered if he felt both his hands on him when as well as where did Samuel get the beer? He did not ask. Each gulp pumped the music through him and washed away his insecurities of dancing with a man. Denard closed his eyes and submerged himself into his slight intoxication. He caught the beat and began to surf the wave of his wanton desire to dance and ignore everything around him. Little by little, Denard's frigid moves became as fluid as the heat surrounding him, which melted his inhibitions. His personal space was not breached while he moved in concert with Samuel. Samuel removed the bottle from Denard's left fist, which seemed to be the final restriction. Denard unlocked his hips and let them seductively rotate with the tempo. Samuel stewed in culpable satisfaction as different parts of Denard brushed against his hot spots when their bodies slowly began to interlock. Nice, Samuel admired, enjoying Denard's gyrations. He removed his shirt to cool off his distended and energized shoulder and back muscles and then flirtatiously twirled Denard so he could wipe the sweat from his face with his shirt. Take your glasses off, Samuel said. Denard did not hear him, so Samuel removed them and dabbed his shirt on his face. The unsolicited gesture startled Denard, and he opened his eyes. When Samuel looked into Denard's eyes, the benevolence and innocence was as real as the moves that taunted the freak in him. Over the vociferous hip-hop sounds, Samuel yelled, You ever kiss a guy? What? You ever kiss a guy? Samuel yelled again. I can't hear you, Denard screamed. Samuel pulled Denard to him and ingested his lips like a ripe plum. He savored the purity of his spirit and he slid his tongue throughout Denard's mouth. Denard tensed up and sought to push away when his brain registered he was kissing a man. That was an excerpt from The Frog Pond, a sizzling new novel that was released on Tuesday. I sat down with writer Otis Randolph on the eve of his becoming a first-time published author. It is the night before your first published novel being released. What are you feeling? Well, when I was uh, on the show for All About the Authors, I remember Stacy, the great Dane Nelson, saying that uh, when you actually see the novel, hold it in your hand, and it's about to uh, drop, the only thing she could say was, damn, that I did. And I thought that was pretty simplistic, and I thought I would be jumping around and, and doing cartwheels, but I have to echo her sentiments exactly, and it was pretty much a, damn, I really did it. I did it, and... Um, that's pretty much my feeling for it at, uh, at this particular moment in time. I'm sure the rest of, of the um, emotions will probably jump out later, but it's pretty much more of a, a sense of I really did it, something tangible, something right here that everyone is going to be able to pick up nationwide tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And when you scroll back to a year ago, to two years ago, to three years ago, when did this process first start? When did you first get the realization, the desire, the thought that I'm going to write a novel? Well, actually taking it a step back, uh, The Frog Pond itself was originally a 60-page poetry book five years ago. Oh, I should say probably about between five to six years ago. Mm -hmm. So that was probably the extent that it was going to go. And it was one of the popular poems that I um, would read at open mic sets. And it started giving me some ideals and some, you know, what-if scenarios. And I started playing around with that for a little bit. And then, you know, 
know, the characters kind of popped in my head, you know, from that, from that particular poetry piece. And from there, it just started creating its own universe and other characters started coming about from hearing different conversations, internet news, newspaper articles and things like that until uh, probably last year when my mother was actually going through chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And I was really disappointed in uh, some of the responses or non-response that I got from people with regards to, you know, just pretty much checking in on us. And I had gotten to a point where I was exasperated, you know, trying to make sure that uh, that she was comfortable while going through the treatments and uh, making sure that she was taken care of that, when, you know, when she finally did go to sleep, instead of, you know, just really cussing people out and everything else because I need, you know, I really needed some help, I just actually went back to the book and said, you know what, I've been playing with this for far too long, and I got into a zone, and so the writing process for this particular book was more so therapy because I was pretty much on the point of imploding. When you say when she finally went to sleep... Mm-hmm. Oh, no, you know, she went to sleep and then got up in the morning and stuff like that. I mean, you know, actually went to bed. Okay. For rest. And no, she, no, I'm, I'm very happy to say that October will be uh, one year as a cancer survivor. Okay. So I'm very happy to Okay, very that. good. <laughs> very good. I'm very happy to hear that. So now, when you were going through that, your mother's chemotherapy in that period in your life, were you in Houston? Yes, I was here in Houston. I've actually been here in Houston for uh, two and a half, and it's going on three years. It'll actually be three years in November, so it's closer to three years than it is uh, two and a half. Okay, so your mom is in Houston as well? Yes. Okay. And a lot of The Frog Pond, which is your first published novel, which is out today, is set in Washington. Yes. So at what point in your journey did you end up in Washington? Because you're not from Washington. I'm a native Washingtonian. You came to Washington at some point in your life to live and to work. At what point in your journey did you actually come to Washington? I got to Washington probably June 2002. I'm originally from Chicago. When I moved to D.C., it was probably more so... I really don't want to say an act of desperation because that was not the case at all. What it was was pretty much a leap of faith. And I had at that point been unemployed for a year. And it was around about the time of uh, 9-11. And everything was pretty much, you know, shaken at that point. And then mm-hmm. with the whole uh, Enron case um, happening as well, I remember Arthur Anderson was the main uh, accounting firm, and their home office was based in Chicago. So when Enron got shook, Arthur Anderson was was shaken as well, too. And, you know, like I was mentioning with 9-11, you have uh, American Airlines and United Airlines that both had hubs in Chicago at the same time. So Chicago was hit with like a double whammy, and needless to say, you know, we've heard about the um, politics in Chicago with with uh, with Bogoyevich and everything else. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's you know those type of events and everything else were circulating around Chicago, so it was very difficult for me to find employment. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to my mother, and I told her I think that I will probably have an opportunity, a better opportunity in Washington, D.C. And she pretty much said, well, you know, go for it. And um, at this particular point in time, I think I had waited almost until the 11th hour when I had uh, two or maybe three unemployment benefit checks that were coming to me. Mm-hmm. And before, it was just like, no, mas, that's that's it. Mm-hmm. So what I ended up doing was I cashed those checks and I gave that to my mother to help with the uh, mortgage payment mm-hmm. because we both had, we, uh, we owned an apartment building at that time. And what I ended up doing was I canceled my car insurance. And I'll never forget, they gave me $145 back. And that was enough for me to get a one-way train ticket to Washington, D.C., and for me to actually carry six weeks' worth of clothes and $50 in my pocket. And I said, if I can't make it here in D.C., I would rather be homeless than to actually sink my mother financially. 
Wow. That is quite a leap of faith, as you said. Yep. And the thing about it was, 12 days later, I ended up landing a temporary position at BET Networks. And uh, actually, nine weeks later, they hired me full time. I'm telling you, God rewards faith. Yes, sir. Yes, it can does. just be the size of a mustard seed. But if you take a step, you got God's backing. You know, that is such an inspirational story. Reminds me of my family. You know how you hear your family's stories all the time. My mom and dad always tell the story of how when they left Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, where they're all from. I'm the first generation born in Washington, my sister and I. And when they left Pittsburgh, they left, they got married. They got in the car, and they had $9 to their name. My father had a job here already because his brother already lived here working construction, and he got got my father on as construction. But they had $9, and they had a ham that they had gotten as a wedding present. Wow. Yep, and they lived with my uncle, my father's brother, and his wife. And on that $9, my father started his construction job the next day, and that's how their life in Washington started, and that was 48 years ago. See, the faith the size of a mustard seed. Mm-hmm. Like now, much of the Frog Pond, as I said, happens in Washington, which was such a treat for me being a native Washingtonian to be able to touch and have firsthand knowledge and experience of some of the reference points and some of the places that you pointed out. When you, and you're going to be asked this question a lot, as you have been in the last few months leading up to the release of the book today, how do you describe the Frog Pond? The Frog Pond, which the tagline is Searching the Murky Waters for a Happy Ever After, it pretty much started off with the whole, I've always been fascinated with the fairy tale of the princess kissing this frog and it turns into a a heroic prince that is supposed to rescue the damsel in distress, fight off the evil dragon, so on and so forth. And, you know, those fairy tales always kind of stuck with me because it's like, you know, why is it that you have to, I guess, from the way I I was looking at it, you know, kiss all of these undesirable things or, you know, just kind of go through these undesirable circumstances just to be rescued. And so uh, with the frog pond, it was more of a uh, metaphoric mm-hmm. title than anything else. And uh, I wanted to keep it general, just, you know, just when people look at the title, pretty much what does it mean to them? And, you know, once they flip it over and look at the synopsis and everything else, it's like, okay, you know, it's it's right there for you if you want to pick up the book and, and see what this particular Frog Pond universe was all about, then, you know, go ahead and crack the book open. And I guarantee once you get to the end of the page, I don't think you will look at certain things the same way. No doubt. And I love the creativity involved in the metaphor because it does ask something of the reader. And I like that because many people put, yeah, you're welcome. Many people put very literal images. If you read the synopsis on the back of the book, many people will flip over. Many authors will choose to people and populate that cover with very literal images of what that synopsis is. And you don't do that. You ask the reader, you have a beautiful cover and you ask the reader to do some work as they're reading the book. And I love that opportunity as a reader and a lover of words and a good story. I thoroughly appreciate that. Let's talk about some of the characters in this book, The Frog Pond, because there are some characters... There are characters in this book, I'm telling you. And for me, while there are lots of characters in the book, for me, there is a central character, and that is Denard. Is, would you agree with that? Yes, Denard is, is the central character. Whether he wants to be or not, he, mm-hmm. he is, he's just the chosen one. And it's like, wow, okay. It sucks to be him. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot swirling around Denard. He seems to be, even again, though there are different stories here within this one story, but he seems to be a nucleus of sorts, and he kind of overlaps between a lot of these stories. And let me just say, Denard is a beast, because while he is described, you describe him several times in this story as thin and in relationship to some of the other guys in the novel and the story who are beefy and bulked and beautiful and exotic and all these wonderful things. You don't describe him that way. And yet, again, he is the nucleus of so much of what is happening. So as I read through the pages, I kept asking myself, what is it that this dude has that is entangling him in this very complicated and page-turning web that is being woven here? So the brother is a beast. Another character in the book 
in my opinion, is alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm like, you know, it's just like, that's why he's describing the hallucinating alcoholic because it's like, and like, I, like, I got to, you know, I got to, I got to find some answers somewhere. Alcohol is clearly a character in this story. And as someone who, now, nah, anyone who knows me knows that I like my wine, I like my gin and tonics, I love me some vodka, although I've been laying off that of late. As I get older, I find myself drinking less vodka, but I certainly do love it. And as you point out in this book, at Alley Cats, which is like the cheers of this story, with the bartender Moose, when you find a spot where somebody can mix a drink the way that you like it, a drink that you enjoy mixed the way that you like it, like that's the spot. And so I do have a spot in my neighborhood where Zach, God bless him, can mix a dirty martini like no other. And so when I'm there, I do have the vodka. Let's see, there you go. There you go. What was that movie uh, with Jackie's back that uh, Jennifer Lewis said, everybody needs an entendre. Everybody needs a moose, too. <laughs> everybody needs a moose. Yeah, I appreciated the scene with Samuel Slade in Atlanta at the bar in Atlanta. I think that was very well laid out. I compliment you on the way that you have laid out the story and the way that you have gotten into the mind of each character and the way that you have peppered the technique that you used and peppering out bits and details of the story as we go along. And that creates quite a page turning experience. And this particular scene in Atlanta with Samuel Slade, I think, was very pivotal for the main character, Denard. And I love the way that you laid that out. I also want to talk about John, also known as AJ, and uh, the people that you put into the book. This is how you know good writing, because the people that you put into the book are people that I've met. You know, they're people that I've met along my journey. I'm 44 years old, so I've met some people in my journey. And a lot of these brothers are people that I've actually run into. They're characters. I can see their characters in the way that you've laid out these scenes. As you reflect on what you've written, as you reflect on these characters that I've just briefly mentioned, who resonates with you at the period when you were in Washington? If you can think to when you were here in Washington, where a lot of the story takes place, were there people that you ran into that made their way into this book? I mean, I you know, I will be telling a bold-faced story if I said no, but um, I mean, but yeah, there were some people that I've come across in D.C. that fit the bill, because I, you know, I'll be the first one to tell you, I was the happy hour king. I love, I loved a good happy hour, mm-hmm. especially if they would have, like, double fist um, specials. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I was there. I was definitely going to be there. You know, just like you, a Tangerine Tonic or right. a, um, I really appreciate D.C now because of the fact not too many people know how to make bone crushes the way that they do at Jasper's. And I have to tell people all the time how to make it, and they always fall short on one ingredient, which is always the uh, champagne or the chambroya, and that really hurts my feelings. So, you know, I, DC will forever have my heart because of the fact it introduced me to the bone crusher. Yeah, and I don't even know what a bone crusher is, so I'm going to have to go find out, and we'll have to do a follow-up on that. <laughs> okay, then. All right, the uh, uh, characters in the book are not just necessarily people from Washington, D.C. They've been people that have uh, crossed my path throughout my life, even as a child. So there are people from Chicago, here in Houston, uh, where I am now. So it's a collage of a lot of different people from a lot of different places. Right. And as you know very well, Washington is a triad area. So there's Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia with the Potomac River sort of balancing all three sides of that, being in the middle of of all three sides of that triangle. So people live in Virginia, people live in Maryland, people live in, in Washington proper, and all of that is the Washington metropolitan area. Now, interestingly enough, another character in the book is Eric Moore. Now, I know an Eric Moore who lives right here in Washington, and I called him today. I talked to him today, and I said, dude, you have got to get this book that comes out tomorrow <laughs> because there's an Eric Moore in this book. And I began to describe some things to him, and his response was, do I need to get my lawyers on this? And I was like, 
I'm like, I, you know, I, I'm like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I, I did not have any type of megaphones or wiretaps or anything like that. I, you know, this came straight from the imagination of Otis Randolph. <laughs> I said, well, read the book and let's talk about it. But I do want to be clear in some specific detail that part of this book explores the life of brothers who are on the down low and professional athletes who are on the down low. Yeah, that's the one I'm a little bit more, I, I think I'm probably more scared of that than anything else. So, uh, you know, I, I got to wrap my forehead on that one. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm scared of a little other feedback on that one because I really wanted to do some thorough research on it to make it different. Mm-hmm. Well, this novel does bring you into a world of athletes who are on the down low and they've formed a little group called the lion's den where they get together with each other and freak and enjoy each other's maleness they have sex and i can tell you this i have to be careful how i talk about this because this is someone that i know personally Mm -hmm. and he dated a professional basketball player for about two years that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. And the basketball player would have him follow the bus, the team bus. I mean, literally, he would be behind the bus following them from city to city. He would be in either, in some instances, the same hotel that the team stayed in or in an adjacent hotel nearby somewhere. But this went on for years two years that I'm aware of. And he would tell me that there were certain parties, gatherings, house parties that the athlete would have where he would invite certain people over whom he knew would probably be cool with this or whom he was recruiting to be in this circle. And uh, these freak parties would go on. I mean, they had sex, all dudes. So it does happen. I mean, you've tapped into something that I know exists. And and let me say this right now. I'm like, I, I didn't know. I made it up I said God I made it up I made it up I made it up that is my disclaimer I am sticking to it so if somebody reads something in there and it's just like wait a minute I was not there no I didn't know I made it up so of course there is a character in this novel in the story that you've written that is married that creeps with a man and they're dealing with that and there are athletes who creep and and by creep I mean who are on the down low and they're dealing with all of that at the same time a few of these athletes are still seeing women still fostering relationships with women so there's this duality that exists in this world that you take us into and everybody is dealing with the repercussions of this there's also a storyline where there are ministers who are also creeping and who have used the religious institution as a place to creep and as a tool for recruitment to creep. So I'm wondering about your inclusion of that, particularly the religious institutions. How did that come to be part of this story? Well, by you living in D.C., I'm pretty sure you can appreciate the Internet articles that were going on with a certain religious organization that wanted to divest from, from the city if a, if a certain ban was passed. Mm-hmm. And once I saw that, me being a preacher's kid, I was just like, seriously? And I started researching the different threads, and I said, no, I can't. I, I, I cannot pass this up mm-hmm. because this is, is absolutely crazy. How is this organization going to do one thing, but at the same time kind of get on the media's case as far as the out-of-court cases that they settled because of sexual abuse and everything else, almost to the excess of, I want to say, $3 billion? You want to divest from the city from people who actually benefit from this program and have nothing to do with the struggle. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to be a moral issue. Really? Okay. Okay. If that lets you sleep better at night, you go right ahead. You go right ahead. And, you know, once I kind of did the research on it, that particular part, coupled with some of my own personal experiences, that does not compare with this book. Some of the things in there did not happen to me as a preacher's kid or, you know, affiliated with the church or anything like that. But some of the things that I observed as a preacher's kid. Mm Mm-hmm. 
we're at a point now where it's like enough is enough. The whole pie in the sky, you know, heaven lasts always. I completely understand that. But in the world that we're in today, there's a lot of hurting people. A lot. You need to, you know, you need to address it head on for what it is because some of these people who you think are abominations and, and combinations and everything else, you haven't seen anything if you haven't started to at least try to minister to some of these people to at least get them back on the right track to believing and thinking that life is still worth it. What you bring out, well, two things. One, you came to, to Washington in 2001. I'm going to take you back briefly to the mid-80s because I wrote down the name of someone. I'm not going to call his name out during this conversation, but when I was reading through the storyline of the preachers, it took me back to the mid-80s of a preacher here in Washington who was involved in, I guess you would call it a quote-unquote scandal. Mm-hmm. relating to this whole, we didn't have the language of the down low lifestyle at that time. So I didn't have that language for it, but he was a very, and is a very famous preacher here in Washington. And he had his own church and formed a new church and took people from his previous church into this new church. And it came out that he was having a long-term relationship with a boy in the congregation. I think it was an adult man. He may have been 18, 19, 20. I think it started at like 18, 17, 18, 19, 20. At this point, the boy was probably, let's see, I was 20 at that time. So yeah, he was probably about my age at that time. So this relationship probably started more like 16, 17, 18, and it was going on at that time. And the boy, as some of these boys do, turned on him basically and, and, and outed him. And it became a big scandal here in Washington. But it brought up a lot of the same issues that you're talking about. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you bring out brilliantly in this book, The Frog Pond, is how you can do one behavior privately and yet do another behavior publicly. But even more importantly than that, which was quite brilliantly written by you, I would say, that the abuse, I want to be very specific because I've been kind of general, the abuse that a lot of homosexual men encounter at the hands of other homosexual men who are creeping is something that you explore in this book. And the brothers who are being abused take that abuse for a variety of reasons. So a lot of the brothers calling you faggot and punk and sissy and whatever they say are themselves participating in this down low behavior. And that's one of the ways they deal with it by lashing out not only at the people that they're having sex with, but at that character type. So if you're a little more feminine than a masculine brother, you're attacked for that. If you are closeted and somebody is not, you're attacked for that. There's an internal attack going on and has always gone on within the man with man community, the gay community. And you bring that out. That's touched upon as a narrative in this book. Well, in your book, The Frog Pond, you weave these narratives through the story. For many people, sexuality is very clear and simple. And for other people, it is very complex and complicated. And that's what you're talking about. One of your characters, Eric Moore, his father is a preacher. Mm-hmm. He's married. Mm-hmm. And he develops feelings for another man. And has a history of that. When he was incarcerated, he had some experiences. If you roll it back even further, he had some experiences in the church. So a lot of what you're saying happens and feeds into, in real life, feeds into some of the things that you have written about in the book. It's very complicated pie for a lot of people, and how they navigate that is an individual choice. It's how people navigate the complexities of their lives. But a lot of men in this book, The Frog Pond, are searching, I feel, for love. I think all of us are really searching for love and really want love. Love is the universal balm that heals all wounds. And at the end of the day, I think everyone wants and needs to be loved and to love, not only to be loved, but to love. Exactly. And men tend to look for sex when what they really are searching for is love and intimacy. Now, here's the thing about that, because there are some people listening who will go, oh, my God. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Not that. But what you bring out, and this is the whole thing that really turned a lot of people's heads around years ago when this whole down low phenomenon started coming to surface through the books of Elon Harris, is that Samuel is a big, strappy, strong, attractive man. Nothing like you would think a gay guy, a quote-unquote gay guy, to be. 
not mm. soft, not effeminate, not girly. This brother has more swagger than most. Exactly. And so that's somebody, first of all, you know, Denard had never even thought about kissing a man that we know of up until this point. But to have somebody like that pull up on you. Exactly. Was extremely shocking to him. Exactly. Exactly. And it's extremely shocking for a lot of people whenever they realize and have realized. I don't think it's a big surprise now. I do think in 2010, in general, people get that there are guys like that who are having sex with each other. That they're strappy, big, manly dudes who like men. I think people get that now, don't you think? I do believe they get that. And I think we're probably moving, in my opinion, I think we're probably moving to a choice where it's more so of if you tell me so, I can make the choice for myself mm -hmm. if I still want to deal with you or not. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we, that's where we are with that. Mm -hmm. I want to share this with you because I think that it makes the point. Again, I have to be careful how I talk about it because this involves people that I know and really love and care about. But I have a friend who is in a relationship with a married man and the guy has two children. And this dude left his family on a Thanksgiving in one city saying he was going out to do something and drove to a neighboring city to see my friend to have some intimacy and then drove back on Thanksgiving now to his family. And so this happens. This kind of stuff is happening. Now, here's the kicker with this. My friend is HIV positive. And in the two years that he's been seeing this married man, he has not shared with that man that he is HIV positive and they are having sex. And I'm bringing that up not to share that. I'm bringing that up to point to the central issue of what this down low phenomenon does to people. It can ruin people's lives. It is the reason why women, black women, have AIDS in the numbers that they have to this day because their men are going out. I'm going to be very graphic here. So listeners, cover your ears now if you don't want to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, I think this is girl folk radio, so I, th I think we'll be all right. Okay, so their men are going out and having and being penetrated by men and then going home. So they're being deposited into by men and then they're going home and depositing that into their women. They're penetrating their wives' girlfriends. So you see where that line is going. That's how that infection, in many cases, is happening. And this guy who has these two ch children and a wife, they're at risk. Yeah, they are. Because my friend will not be honest with the guy and give him a choice. You said choice a few minutes ago. It's about choice. Tell the brother, and if he still wants to deal with you, then he can. But yeah. my friend is fearful of rejection, as anybody would be, that he won't be desired anymore. And you very well may not be if the brother finds out that that's what's going on inside your body. So this is the complexity. This is under the category of complex and complicated, not the clear and simple sexuality that a lot of people enjoy. They know where they stand. It's no issue. They go on with their lives. But there are a lot of people and, and a lot of them are in this book, <laughs> The Frog Pond. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, it, a lot it, of them are in this happen. book. It's, okay. a, it's, a, it's a cast in there, it's all right. It's a cast of characters in this book who fit under this category of complex and complicated with regard to their sexuality. So I bring that story up to say, to animate in a real-life scenario what you so eloquently and brilliantly write about in The Frog Pond. These complex relationships are happening every day, and people's lives are at stake. The self-esteem of the, the gay guy, if you will, like the Evans of the world, the Evan in your book, the Evan Phillips in your book, mm -hmm. the self-esteem of those guys is at stake because they're the guys who are always lurking in the shadows wanting a day an hour a week a minute with the guy who's in a committed relationship with a woman yeah so their self-esteem is at stake and then the guy who knows in his heart who knows in his heart like these athletes in your story know in their heart what they're doing they know what goes on at the lion's den as you write about they know what they're doing they know they're three or four brothers just freaking it up all night long with each other and yet they get up they play their sports they have the groupies they have the women as well but they know in their hearts what they're doing so that is a complex life too because mm -hmm. I, I think I um, lightly touch upon it as well too you know with you know you complicate that with some of the um, the party favors as well too to with you know which is pretty much uh, recreational drug use and everything else if you use that in a wrong setting in the wrong situation that is just as deadly as um as penetration itself mm-hmm 
No doubt. And I think a lot of people forget that. I breezed the ball uh, over it, but I just remember I was actually um, dating this young, young lady and everything else. And we talked about, you know, family drama and stuff like that. And she told me about, and Uncle, when you were talking about the uh, the story of your friend, it reminded me of the story that she shared with me on the fact that her uncle passed away from a complication of AIDS. And the thing about it was he was never slept with a man a day in his life. You know, at least that we know uh, that she knew of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing about it was he had, for lack of better words, he had a harem, but they all used drugs. Mm-hmm. Right. And I agree with you. My search is for understanding. That's what I love. That's why I love what I do, because I get to talk to people and try to understand. I love my friend that I told you about. And we talk about this all the time, you know, because I want to understand why you will be in a relationship with someone and not share that level of honesty with them. This is a critical point. I want to understand what's going on with you that you're making that choice. And I get it. That's brought out in your book, The Frog Pond. The needs for so many people are so great. The emotional needs. Denard has a lot of needs. To be honest with you, as I look through this, read through this book, I'm trying to figure out what it is in this man that all these people are so enamored with, because sometimes he seems like an asshole. The way that he treats his mother, (laughs) the way that he treats the therapist, the way that he treats people. It's like, what is it about this man that is so great? I'm asking myself. But you get a chance through all the details that you unpack so well to try to get into his head to understand where he is. Evan. Phillips, you know, someone who clearly has some self-esteem issues. You try to understand, not judging them, but trying to understand why is it that you will let yourself be taken through some of these experiences that you're letting yourself be taken through with some of these athletes. If you dig deep enough, if you talk to anyone long enough about the things that go on in their life, usually, and you ask the right questions and listen more than you ask, you can find out kind of the root of why people allow certain things in their life. Yeah. You can get to it. And for a lot of gay guys, I think from my conversations and just living in Washington, D.C. for 44 years, a lot of gay guys, I think, and even straight women, too, I think this is true as well. A lot of gay guys typically want the thugged out big masculine Samuel Slades of the world. They want the Adarijo and, and, and Dario. Andario, yeah. who's, who's one of the athletes in your book. They want the Andarios. They want the Burrells. They want the dudes who are out there looking like they wouldn't in a million years get down with a brother. That's what they want. So when a lot of these dudes run, run into that, they'll do almost anything if the guy they run into fits this knight in shining armor that they've been waiting for. They will allow almost anything to go down. Well, the book is out today, The Frog Pond, by first-time published author Otis Randolph. The book is out today. Now, there, the book opens up with sex. <laughs> yeah, it did. You know, it's just like, you know, let's, let's go ahead and get this out the way. It opens up with sex. So when you're writing about sex, like, just take me back to one of the sex scenes that you wrote, because there are quite a few of them in the book, but this opening sex scene. When you're writing about sex, what are you thinking about when you're writing about sex in that way? As far as the writing is, when it got down to the sex and the freaking and stuff like that, it wasn't, it had nothing to do with my experience, to be quite honest with you, because when it came to actually inserting those parts in there, I had developed a thorough understanding of all of the characters in the book. So when it was time for them to get intimate, that is basically the character's makeup. I have nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. That is pretty much the character's makeup from the way that I profiled them or how they think and feel and stuff like that. It was more so of this is what they would do. This is how they would handle it because of whatever it is that's going on in their life and everything. This is how they want to be treated and they haven't gotten there quite yet. So maybe if I demonstrate to this person This is how I want to feel. This is how I want to be touched. This is how to work my body, pretty much. Mm Kind of catch what I'm doing and reciprocate or, you know, repeat it. Simon says, touch me here. Then touch me here. Mm -hmm. Simon says, touch me there, touch me there. You know, from my understanding of, thorough understanding of the characters, that was pretty much calculated writing on how I imagined them to be. Well, let me say this because, and this may be very controversial. As I read the book, particularly Eric Moore's story, I can clearly see what's at stake. He's got a wife. He's got two children. And by the way, 
it was hysterical when that little girl called that waitress a harlot and that and Dave and Buster's. <laughs> that was hysterical. I laughed out loud. I had to go get some water. I mean, that was funny as I don't know what. It was hysterical. I loved it. But this guy has a family, so you can clearly see what's at stake for him mm-hmm. and the complexity of what he's dealing with. And even the wife, Renee, mm-hmm. she sees it. Mm-hmm. She sees it. She feels it. She's looking at her man and knowing that he's longing for someone else to comfort and console him. A man. Now, that's mm-hmm. deep for a sister to come to that realization. Mm-hmm. That is a deep thing. And in the gay relationships, it's harder to see what is at stake beyond your own desire to love and be loved. And I'm not belittling that at all. Because mm-hmm. that is important stakes. Mm-hmm. It's less easy to see what the naked eye, what's at stake here for Ondario, his career. And that's a tangible thing. You know, I get that. It's just, it's a different stakes. It's a different stakes than when there are two daughters and a wife looking at you going, what's up? You know, you've ruined this family. So it's clear to see when there are children involved. I think what I'm trying to say, and I'm not saying it very well, is that in the gay relationships in the book, The Frog Pond, you have to think and feel outside of a traditional setup. What's at stake for these guys if they don't have one another? I think there's something at stake for JC not having Burrell. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not so easy to see because they don't have children together. They don't share a home together. You know, there's different things you have to think. It causes you as a reader to think, okay, well, what really... It's easy for you to connect, which is why I shared that story about the brother who's dating the married man, that this man has his family at stake. But what does my friend have at stake, is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where this book does shed some light. Because if you look at some of the things that are going on in Denard's life, you can clearly see the things that have been sacrificed along this path. Mm-hmm. And with Denard, it's like it's been sacrifices on all fronts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's with him in particular, that's why I kind of, I really wrote him the way that I did as far as, I think I used unassuming. Mm -hmm. Because of the fact, amidst of all of these Greek gods, African, you know, mandingos and, and warriors and all this other stuff, you have probably the strongest person in this most unassuming package. Well, you not only say unassuming, I mean, Burrell puts the brother down. Burrell says to Ontario, man, I got all these dimes lined up for us. Why are you dealing with this punk ass, you know, whatever? I mean, you put you put Denard down from Burrell and a couple of, in terms of speaking to his physicality, you make mm-hmm. it clear like he's not the one your eye would necessarily go to first. That's why I'm saying to myself as I'm reading this, this brother is a beast. Like, what is it that this dude has that is making him the nucleus of all of this, this, this web of people because you do quite clearly say that he's not the one evan would be the one that a lot of people would say okay i want Mm -hmm. that you know what i mean because he's exotic he's beautiful his body is sculpted like a greek god i mean all the things that women and the gay guys want Mm -hmm. and denard is not that guy and yet he's the center of all of this the frog pond is out today i want to encourage our listeners and viewers to go get it go read it and have your own conversation just like the one we're having today otis randolph is the writer of the novel otis what do you want people to walk away with after they've read your story the frog pond what do you want them to feel and when they get to that last word on that last page and close the book what is it that you're ultimately trying to leave people with after reading this story? As far as when they close the book, I actually just want them to feel something. I want them to talk about what they read. I want them to understand that some of the quiet people, the nice guys, so to speak, that people tend to gloss over because they seem to be, you know, boring or I don't know, geekish, nerds, whatever the case may be, don't sleep on them because you really don't know what their true story is and you will probably be very surprised when they're actually put in a situation how they how they have to fend for themselves. So I'm like, you can't count anybody out. So take the time to get to know people as well, too. Take the time to understand and respect where they are, even if you may find it repulsive. I mean, that it's repulsive because of the different experiences that you've gone through. It's a brand new story that's about to unfold. This story, The Frog Pond, reminds me of the age-old 
struggle, human struggle of what's good to you and what's good for you. And some people want both. They want what's good to them and what's good for them instead of making a choice. That choice is very hard for a lot of people to make. Well, you know, and the thing about it is what's good to you and what's good for you could actually be packaged all in the same person. Amen. If you actually take the time to find it. I mean, if you take the time to, you know, to cultivate it and and learn and get to know it. You know, it's just, you know, we're we're actually in, in a stage where everything... It's a download, 30 seconds, you know, DSL, wireless, and everything else. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no – I mean, I'm surprised people still know what the word courting is. Right. They don't. A lot of people don't. A lot of people don't. Now, you just hit it, and, and that's a perfect way to end our conversation. You could get what's good to you and what's good for you in one package if you take the time to peel back the layers. If you take the time to go beyond that surface, that initial visual, and peel back the layers – you might find something there that is good to you and good for you. You got that right. You get a pot of some of that frog pond murky water. You got <laughs> to boil it on the stove and everything else. And once you get all that ugly sediment out of it, you'd be surprised. It may be some good mineral water for your soul. Amen. Well, the frog pond is out today. Congratulations on a story well told. You should feel you good much. about. You should feel really good about this first effort. Your first novel, your first published book. It was a journey to get here, but you're here. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on the show. I've I've been looking forward to this. Thank you very much. Very nice. Congratulations. I wish you much success with the book. Come back and tell us how it's doing. Come back and tell us when you write your second one. Do you, you have another one in the works? I was about to say yes for those since you've enjoyed the front I will say I am actually working on the sequel. Okay, so you're going to continue these stories. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, I, could, I, I, I can't leave it like that. Once it was done, I was like, I, those characters put me through. I had to take a four-month break from them. Yeah. I'm like, I, I can't deal with y'all today. I can see it. I can see it as a film. I can see it as a, as a television movie. I can see it as a big screen movie. So we'll just put that out in the universe and see what happens. We'll let God fill in the details of that. Otis Randolph, I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. Thank you for talking about the book. Thank you for talking about your life and for being so open and sharing from your soul with me. I appreciate the conversation. I appreciate you. And I appreciate the time and opportunity that you are given to talk to me about, uh, you know, just me as a person and the book as well, too. And so I, I thank you. Love.